Um, okay, where were we? So we're in verse 15 of chapter 7. And he goes on and he talks again how he's seen everything in my days of vanity. And so he's talking about this idea of, uh, of the wise person. Now, there's a lot of different ways to look at this passage, so bear with me. If you thought last week was hard, this is going to be worse. Um, <laughs> I said that, and, and Brian and I make eye contact. You know? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but, uh, but he's talking about the wise person who carefully evaluates uh, and gives thought to really the implications of what he sees uh, in front of him, and, and what... What is he talking about? What does he see? Um, it, it, it says there is a, a just man who perishes in his r- righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life uh, in his wickedness. Now, in a minute, I want to kind of, in, verse, in the NIV, it says... Uh, in verse 15, it talks about the meaningless life, correct? Okay. Um, but that, that might not be the best translation. Okay. But, so you had, we had to go there eventually, right? But that may not be the best translation. I don't, I don't think any of the other translations talk about this being a meaningless life, um, as much as, as it's really talking about man and his life as being as a vapor, which is, I don't know what the ESV, Cindy and Mary both have that tonight. Um, is it described uh, vanity? Does it say vanity? Does it say vapor? Um, what does it say? Anything? In verse 15. I'm sorry? Evil doing. Um yeah, that's even that's even a bit different. I have a Holman here, but the print is about, or the font is. Uh, it says, "In my feudal life, I have seen everything," which would go along lines of this idea of being meaningless, vain life. Okay, okay, vain life, or in my vanity. That's how the New King James says it. So. Thank God somebody did some more digging on this, <laughs> so I didn't have to dig quite as hard. It, it doesn't necessarily really refer to vain, although that's how they translate it, because it, the word can mean that. Um, it's the word he, hebel, H-E-B-E-L in the English spelling of the Hebrew. Um, it really refers... Not so much that something is meaningless or empty or vain, uh, but it really refers to this idea as giving a picture of a vapor. Now, don't think vaping. I don't think anybody, any of you vape, but anyway, don't. But think of, like, for instance, a, when a, a, you put a kettle on the stove and all of a sudden it, it starts steaming, and that steam is what? A vapor. Now, can you predict where that steam's going to go besides up? Can you kind of harness it and channel it? And, and don't say you can, Brian. But, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's the unpredictableness of a vapor is what this, the picture 
that it is giving us in the Hebrew. Um, and so it's really talking more about this idea of something that is unpredictable, something that is uncontrollable, and something that really is, can be unmanageable. So that's what he's really referring to here in verse 15. So he says, I've seen in these days of uncontrollable, unpredictable, uh, unmanageable. And then he goes on. So this is what he's seen. He's observing this and he's thinking about what it is that he's seeing. Now let me interject. One of the views on this, verse 15 and 16, because 16 gets worse, doesn't it? Do not be overly righteous. Do nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Why would you? How could you by being overly righteous? Is there such a thing as overly righteous? Ah, let's hear it. Someone who is a very spiritual person and doggone it, we want you to know. Would that be would that be kind of what you would describe it? Yeah. So that is uh It does get into a lot of areas because if we're talking about someone to not, or if their warning is to not be overly righteous, okay, you got ahead of me, Ken, but I don't, I'm not faulting you, okay? But I am going to backtrack just a touch. One of the views on this is this is written from a non-Christian, for lack of a better way to describe it, a non-Christian perspective or someone who was not a follower of Yahweh back then. That's one of the views. I Maybe, maybe not. Um, essentially, the thought is that Solomon has given you more of a, the, the ability to see through the lens of someone who does not follow after God. That might be the case, but I, I think there's also some good warning and good admonition. And I kind of lean. And remember what I said about wisdom literature? No. I don't remember either, but uh, let's close in prayer. But, uh, but because there may not be one universal interpretation. Now, the Jews would understand that, and they had different ways of interpreting the Scripture, and they had four main methods of what's called hermeneutics. I've told you this, guys, many times, right? And, and they, they consider them all valid. Now, of course, they see, they, they see all, really the entirety of Scripture is that way. Now, for instance, does that always apply? I don't think so. When I'm reading, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, I, I take that... I interpret that literally. I hope you do as well. Uh, even though there may be nuances of how we interpret that. But wisdom literature is written in such a way that there is possibly some more latitude. But particularly when it is this 
Chapter 7, and and I've shared this with you before, chapter 7 is the hardest chapter in this book, according to some commentators, and I'm like, I can see why. And believe it or not, Brian, I was actually tempted to go to the end of the book tonight. But I I think that's short-circuiting possibly what the Lord might have for us here because this is inspired Scripture. So the problem of self-righteousness is what you're talking, and that's a possibility, or with the stone, right, being the first to want to cast the stone, which, and I was, was it yesterday? I don't know, close. Yesterday or the day before, I was reading about Jesus and the woman who was caught in adultery. Now, apparently, she was caught by herself uh, in adultery. Um, Some of you got that, but anyway, um, and Jesus essentially said, hey, if you're without sin, go ahead and stone her. Go ahead and stone her, not go ahead and stone her. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> some of you heard that. But anyway, um, and, and, you know, really if you think about it, as he stooped down on the ground to start the ride, he kind of put himself in harm's way. Because if somebody had from behind him had thrown a stone and missed, they might have nailed him instead. Of course he does. You know, and that's the problem with, with, with that type of interaction with, with reading the Scripture. He does know what's going on, but, but and, and, you know, God help us to separate his humanity from his divinity, which you can but can't. You know, and, and, and be, you know, I, I have friends that they believe that Jesus was not really self-aware of who he was. Yeah, and, and they're Christians. I think they are anyway. They say they are, and I, I have no reason to believe that they're not, but they don't think that Jesus was necessarily self-aware until later on in life. I don't think there was a time that, where he wasn't self-aware. That's just my opinion. But I, it, it just it seems to me, particularly conceived by the Holy Spirit, that there was, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't get it. It, it doesn't make any sense to me, but I, I do think that Jesus was completely self-aware of his divinity the entirety of his time here on earth and taking on another nature, taking on human nature, which, which means there is a man in heaven at the throne of God who is also God. Yeah. <laughs> You're getting ready to go back to California. I can see that. But anyway, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, is, it is like a paradox. It is difficult to really try to, to, to uh, discern. And, you know, I, I, had a, I had a friend of mine on the phone. He's going through a huge crisis of faith. He says, I don't know if any of this is true, but I know that Jesus carried the cross for me, and I know that Jesus died for me, and I know that that because of that, I'm, I'm saved. And he goes, and I'm, I don't know about anything else. I said, you know what, maybe write that. Maybe the cross is maybe a great place to stay for a while and to start. And maybe that's enough for you right now. And maybe you just, you just focus in, in on that. And, and probably a lot of this other stuff is just opinion anyway. But, but nonetheless, there's more than just the narrative of the cross in Scripture, is there not? So there, we do have more that we really need to apprehend. Sometimes I think when a person's in that type of a crisis of faith, 
they're probably closer to the Holy of Holies and not realizing it than they've ever been. I'll let you think on that one. But anyway. Um, so I've seen in my days, my days of uncontrollable, unmanageable, um, you have a just man, because we got ahead of ourselves a little bit, but that's okay. Um, that wasn't Ken's fault, it was mine. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Where am I? I'm right here. Uh, verse 15, chapter 7. Okay, so a couple of things. Did God promise to bless Israel in their land if they obeyed the law? He did. All right. Um, now, I can cop out here, make it easy on all of us, and say that that promise was not given under the new covenant. In other words, to those who are Christ followers, to those who believed in Jesus, the church. All right. Uh, and I think that would be true. God has not promised to bless us in the land if we if we obey. I think there are some general things that are often true that God does promise because the blessings in, in, in Israel for Israel were mainly what? Material. The blessings for the church are mainly what? They're spiritual. Okay. But this was written before the church. So... I mean, I want to bring it into the 21st century and then back up a second. All right? So now I'm backing up. So how do you, how do you make, I mean, I mean, this goes back to Job. Um, again, where, where Job's friends, Job's incredible, going back to what you said about righteousness, Job's incredible righteous friends, right, judged him horribly if you've read the book of Job. And I would, I would encourage you, if you haven't read it, to read it. Um, every time I've been in a church where we have taught through the book of Job, people are falling out left and right, going through all kinds of horrible trials. Um, and so I, I, uh, it's, uh, I don't know why that was the case, but I, we, we, we've seen it more than once. Um, but... They presumed, now Job may have been a contemporary of Abraham. We don't know for sure. But he, he may actually have gone back that far. He's definitely before the establishment of, this, of the nation of Israel, which happened when? Sinai, okay? So he's pre-Moses. So, they presume that because he suffered in the way that he did, that he was not a righteous man and that he was self-deceived and all this other stuff that they, chapters among chapters among chapters of discourse that they accused him of. And, of course, he would respond with the paraphrases, you don't know what you're talking about. 
they considered themselves righteous when they said this, when they said that. And when he turned around and said, you don't know what you're talking about, they essentially, they give us an ancient picture of the, 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 the thought today of, you, they, Job, you're in denial, essentially. You know, so there, it was like there was a no-win situation with him. So Solomon is tapping into this idea where he says the just man perishes and is righteous and the wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Now, obviously, the comparison here is a just man who maybe dies before his time, possibly, in his righteousness, and a wicked man who just continues to go on and on, and it appears to, like he goes on and on forever. And, and he, he uh, which is, if you think about that, that's an incredible curse. Why would I say that? Because he's continuing in his wickedness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's a, a, a passage. Gosh, it just went out of my head. Um, I don't think it's Jeremiah, but that came to mind, where it talks about that they, a, a person who continues in these things, they'll be cut off and then that without remedy, which is a very, very scary place to be. Um, so one of the things that I thought about this is although God did promise to bless Israel, was that each and every Israelite? You guys say no. Okay, so there, 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 are, there are general proclamations, and then there are what are called outliers, those exceptions to the rule. All right. Um, when I think about this, too, and I think about blessing, I think... Sometimes I really don't think we really understand blessing like we think we do. And particularly in the church and within the church framework of thinking that we, you know, we, we, we throw around the word, you know, like it's a $2 word. Um, and, and, you know, oh, what a blessing, you know. And, 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 and what, what do we really identify as a blessing and sometimes the things that we don't want in our lives and actually become uh, blessings to us, but blessings that if we were given the choice, we probably never would have asked for. Especially blessings that are, that, that uh, the, the things that are produced in our soul because of suffering, for example. I think that's a good example of that. That, that never really feels like a blessing. Um, but, but if all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, uh, then, then we have to hold on to, to that promise. And to me, that's, that's a pretty solid promise to hold on to, but sometimes we're waiting for those old things to come together for good. Um, so, but... 
when you think about the comparison here between the, 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 the wicked and the righteous, and, and Proverbs is really big on comparisons. And you remember Sunday where I talked about, I used the comparison of what? See if anybody remembers. See if I remember. Maybe that's why I asked because I don't remember. No, I'm kidding. I do remember. The comparison between he who is above all and, and the, the, the life that he's called us to live and those who are of the earth. It's a huge comparison there. That, that's a, really a comparison between the righteous and the wicked. What's another way that uh, uh, Proverbs uses comparisons quite a bit? By the way, it's the first of the month, so if you're still reading Proverbs, you get to start all over again. So I'm looking forward to reading Proverbs 1 tonight. Um, what's the big comparison in Proverbs? There it is. The wise and the fools. And as I'm reading in Proverbs about the fool, it doesn't really describe to me a person that's going to be in eternity with God. And then it, it, it flat out puts it out there for us. And, and really I think that's part of what Solomon is attempting to really unearth in this little passage without really saying it is it really takes us back to Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 which I'll get to read tonight is that the uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom wisdom righteousness fools evil or wrongdoers or uh, those who do evil Um, so but what this tells me, too, is I'm, I'm looking at verse 15, where it talks about the just man, the righteous man, who perishes in his righteousness. It, it tells me that while yet, back to verse 14, so that men cannot find out nothing that will come after him. In other words, we, we live a life that is really beyond our control, a life that's really unpredictable, a life that at times can be very unmanageable. While our manner of life is important, and is our manner of life important? Everybody say yes. Is our manner of life important? Is how we live important? Okay, it's very important. But even being that that matters it doesn't obligate God to bless us. Well, God's not obligated to bless us in this life. So what does that mean? Is God obligated to bless us in the life to come? The, it, the, the, scripture, the scripture essentially tells us that he will. But when we are talking about righteousness, what are we talking about? the righteousness of Christ that has been given or imputed. That's an old King James word, right, Ken? Imputed. Imputed to us. Therefore, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. So the obligation really, Romans chapter 3, right around verse 25 particularly, I would say that it's possible, and I'm kind of, I'm a little bit on thin ice here, uh, um, Larry. But I would say it's possible that part of that obligation is really that the Trinity has done to, within 
themselves. The Father obligating to the Son because of the Son's righteousness in us. Because the best illustration of that obligation of God is given to us in the book of Genesis when God caused Abraham to come under a deep sleep after he had taken the animals and killed them and separated them. And then God comes down in the form of a smoking furnace and he passes between the animals, which was a ritualistic way uh, at that time of signing a contract, which is obligatory. And because God came and walked between the animals uh, and declared the covenant, he was saying that he and he alone would fulfill it. Okay? So... We are, we are called, use the word obligated, we are called to walk in a way uh, that is pleasing to the Lord, correct? And you're asking about the time frame, okay? So I, I, I should have I gone first, but I remember now. Hebrew writing. This is, this is what you have here in, in, in this little kind of frame of, of basically sent two sentences or one sentence in, in uh, verse 15 where it talks about a righteous man. doesn't say when he dies, but then it talks about a man who is wicked, who is prolonged life in his wickedness. It is a, it, in, in Hebrew writing, when you have what's called a couplet like that, following me, you have two two kind of opposite uh, uh, things that are being compared with each other. It's an implication. In other words, it's, it's hinting at the idea that the righteous man probably died earlier in life and that the wicked man probably died much later in life, even though he was wicked. And so the observation to back up from that even a step further is here's this guy who is righteous. He dies, but, you know, so... Um, he dies and he dies earlier than this guy who goes on. He lives forever and ever and ever in his wickedness. And that is a vapor, unmanageable, uncontrollable, unpredictable. That's part of what what this is saying here. Does that that make any any more sense at all? Part of the recognition of the framework of how this was written back then. So they thought differently, they expressed themselves differently, and that's the problem with reading some of this literature. That's even, even in Proverbs, because I'm reading some of the Proverbs going, uh, I'm not quite sure. They thought differently, they wrote differently, um, and they viewed life from a different lens than we do. They, they didn't always think in, they, they use extremes as examples for comparison but also a recognition that, that, that somewhere, somewhere between those two extremes exists everybody, if that makes sense. Not always bouncing back and forth. Okay, so let's go from 1 to 150 being the medium. Okay, 0 is evil. 100 is righteous. Okay, this is right off the top of my head, so hopefully this works. It's not like they're going from 100 all the way to 6 or 0. 
but they may go from 100 to 80 or 170 or 170 back to 94 or, or you know, that's sort of the thinking that they had. But that was part of what the sacrificial system was about. But they, it's clear that the sacrifices did not save them. It was what they were called to do and required to do. Then they went from, let's say, 60 to maybe 20. You know, because that was really an expression of the heart. And they were supposed to follow all of Torah. But Stephen is very clear about their inability to follow Torah. Paul is very clear about their inability to follow Torah. Matter of fact, uh, one, one of the things in Torah is the year of Jubilee, right? Every 50 years. And what happens on the year of Jubilee? You don't work. You don't plant. And actually, that came on the heels of the, 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 set, the 49th year, which was also a Sabbath year. How often did they, did they, did they observe the year of Jubilee? Never. According to, I believe it's Second Chronicles, if I'm not mistaken, they never did. And so God required of the land its Sabbaths. That's part of why he puts it in the framework of, of 70 years that they will be in captivity. So, you know, it's, there was a whole lot more grace that God extended toward Israel than sometimes I think we really give, give thought to. Right? Correct. So that means he goes from 100 to zero? No, I don't think so either because earlier in the book of Romans he talks about his righteousness in Christ. Which is, uh, now you did it. <laughs> I wasn't going to do this. No, it's fine. I think, because this is important. Because, yes, Paul in Romans chapter 7 is struggling, I think. Now, there are those who believe that that's a comparison between his life before he was saved and after he was saved in, in chapter 8. I don't believe that. I don't care if your mileage varies in my, that mine. I'm pretty, I'm pretty convinced that, I believe that, uh, that that is true in regards to Romans 7. Um, chapter 5, which chapter 5 becomes, comes before Romans 7, correct? Always has, always will. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, I'll just leave it at that. But yeah, so... What, what Solomon is bringing out here is he's trying to take issue with the, I believe, the false doctrine of if you are righteous, you will always receive the blessings of God, and if you are evil, you will always receive the, the harshness 
and the judgment of God. Now, do, do evil, wicked people receive the harshness, if you will, or do they receive the judgment of God in their lives while they're li- living? Sometimes, if nothing more than for the consequences, we have prisons filled with people that have done that, right? I mean, those who are guilty, Tim. Anyway, <laughs> anyway so, yeah, yeah, uh, I, I saw that look. Um, but the wicked do appear to prosper. Asaph in Psalm 73 talks about this. Um, Romans 8 even talks about this, 818. Um, but the scripture also tells us that in Matthew 6, they have their reward. And yes, they do prosper, but they have their reward, and the reward that they get here on earth is the only reward they're really going to get. But what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lose his own soul? And so, do you see how this literature starts to draw out of us even more understanding of what God has declared? I think this discussion kind of demonstrates that. Um, Even if some things are not totally clear or completely understood, because, you know, again, I'm reading this going, wow, Uh, so do not be overly righteous nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So Ken Ken referred to this as the guy who is self-righteous and wants everybody to know it, right? I think that's a good interpretation. To be honest with you, I like that one. Um, Nor be overly wise. Can you be overly wise? Okay, let's take it at face value. Don't read anything into it for a second. Take it just at face value. Can you be overly wise? Probably not. So if that's the case, he's speaking almost in a hyperbolic, exaggerated sense, right? Don't be overly wise. Um, I've met people who are overly wise in that regard. Now, that means they're not nearly as wise as they think they are. Because they have to, have you, is it just me or have you ever met people who have to speak into every situation they hear? It's just me, okay? (laughs) It's just me, you know? Um, you know, at times I think that's really true because, I mean, there have been times that, I don't know about you, but there have been a few times where I feel like the Spirit of God has said to me, okay, you've said what needed to be said, now shut up, and I'll take it from here. And so I do. Uh, most of the time. Um, but what's that old saying? Better to be silent and to be thought of fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. So, you know, why should you destroy yourself? Because what this is describing in verse 16 is a, someone who has an over-exalted opinion of themselves. Now, Peter says, and James says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will do what? 
He will exalt you in due time. Now remember, I, I've shared this with you before. This is in, in that little saying, there's your job and there's God's job. Your job is to humble yourself. God's job is to exalt you in due time. So if you try to do God's job, it could very well be that he will do your job for you. You follow that? In other words, if you try to exalt yourself, it could very well be that he will humble you. So I think this is um, verse 16, again, is describing also those people that are described in the scripture where it says pride comes before the fall. That's why it says, why, why, do not, uh, why should you destroy yourself? Uh, nor be, uh, do not be overly wicked. Nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? Look at that compared to verse 15. Why should you die before your time? And yet it says the wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Isn't that a contradiction? Just on paper. I I think what, what Solomon is attempting to do is really give us different perspectives of life rather than to try to give us formulas. You see... If you have a formula, you don't need wisdom. It's all vapor, yeah. So if it's all hebel, it it's almost. I mean, what is that? When I my thought. If it's all hebel, if it's all vapor, then maybe we shouldn't take all this some too, too terribly seriously. Or. All the more reason for wisdom that we need so that we're able to negotiate this in such a way that sometimes we respond, sometimes we don't respond at all. And so it's, it's, I think wisdom is doing the godly thing, the right godly thing at the right godly time for the right godly reason, if that makes any sense. And that's too simplistic, I know. But it, it, it's, I think wisdom is responding in the fear of the Lord in a way that he would have us respond at a given time, which means we have to be dependent upon whom? God, the Holy Spirit. Because if any man lack wisdom, so we're going back to Sunday again, aren't we? If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally and does not withhold because a lot of these things really that we see are unmanageable they're unpredictable they're a vapor that we can't grab a hold of i've never tried to grab the steam coming out of the the teapot and hold on to it you know of course i wouldn't anyway because it's hot but uh, even with a glove. You, you can't grab it and hold on to it and open your hand. It's like, oh, there it is. It's gone. And, and so we, and I, and I think part of why God wants us to walk in wisdom rather than to have us live by formulas 
is that when we walk in wisdom, okay, wisdom is what? Fear of the Lord. Wisdom, anybody lacks, let him ask whom? God. So it, it, the necessity of wisdom and not formulas really, I believe, is intended to call us into a closer relationship to him because it further undergirds our dependency upon him. Does that make sense? One more, and then we're done. Tim, just a few minutes. He's watch clocking. Okay. It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. So you have this in, in warning. That it's, it's like, okay, what is this talking about? This warning of thinking that you're too righteous and too wise, or, okay, hopefully you don't think you're, you're righteous and wise and evil and foolish at the same time. Maybe some people do, but there's a, a, there's a psychological term for that that I won't get into the, tonight, right? But it's also, I believe, a recognition that there are, going back to that illustration that you brought up, the back and forth, we're prone to that. We are prone to being godly one moment and not godly the next. We are prone to walking in the Spirit and then feeding the flesh the next. And that's why we, if we walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.17, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, right? And so... Um, He's not talking about living your life in a balanced mode between righteous and wickedness. He's not talking about that. Um, again, it goes back to the fear of the Lord. Uh, I had some of this stuff highlighted, and when I transferred it, it went away, so I'm not going to read it real fast. Um, but the proper fear of the Lord does two things. It prevents us from overly trusting in our righteousness and overly trusting in our wisdom alone for our own security, and it also prevents us from indulging in wickedness and foolishness. So really, this, this whole little, little small little passage is really driving us back toward the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning, the entry point, the starting block of what? wisdom in other words if you don't that tells me that if you don't fear the lord you're not wise at least not wise in the things of the lord the things that count so we got through it and our thoughts Besides the end of the book. <laughs> We're not there yet. We're getting closer. We're getting closer. You see, this type of passage invites us to really start to think through these things. And one of the things that is helpful for me is I, when I'm doing a study on this on my own, I'll just take a lot of notes. 
when I start when thoughts start coming to my head and I'm reading this and thinking about this, I'm taking notes. Not everything I'm going to write is going to be correct. <laughs> Believe it or not. Not everything that, is, that I'm going to write is going to be correct, but it, you, you start working with this. And it's really, to me, the same way, and then I will be quiet. It is the same way of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord at the river Jabbok and wrestling through these things because God does not want us to live by formulas, but we walk by faith, not by sight. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your great faithfulness of your Holy Spirit to illuminate these things in our lives. We'd ask, Lord, that you would give us wisdom for the things that we have to navigate in our own lives. We recognize that you do not withhold, but you do give liberally. And Lord, sometimes we have not because we ask not, or sometimes we ask incorrectly that we might consume it upon our own lust. And so, Lord, we we pray uh, in the fear of the Lord to ask for wisdom that you might be exalted and glorified, not only in the privacy of our own hearts, but in the public uh, expression of the lives that we live in our families, our homes, our neighborhoods, our church, uh, all those places that we go. So we pray, Lord, that you would give each of us a safe trip home. Uh, We lift up our service this Sunday that you would be honored and that you would be glorified. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.